Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on May 28th, 2021. David Hewitt has been working with plants, animals, soils, and water for more than 25 years, starting when he began working on small farms in upstate New York. He has served in a variety of roles at a number of Philadelphia institutions, including the Wagner Free Institute of Science and as a lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania and a research assistant in the Department of Botany at the Academy of Natural Sciences. He was an AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellow in Washington, D.C., working in agricultural policy. David has an A.S. from the Community College of Philadelphia, a B.A. in Biology from the University of Pennsylvania, and a Ph.D. from the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. We are delighted that you can join us on the Planet Trillion Trees podcast today. David, welcome. I'm sorry that uh, Hal can't be here today, but he was very anxious to ask you a lot of questions. I know that you're involved with the development and the Philadelphia Trees, a field guide to the city and the surrounding Delaware Valley, the book, which was, I think it was put out by Morris Arboretum. Is that correct? Uh, it's a uh, Columbia University Press and joint with with where the Arboretum is also part of. They're on the label there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I saw the label and I was trying to figure out how all that works out, but it was joint. It's a really wonderful book, and of course, as a tree lover myself, I couldn't help but read through the whole thing. And I've met Ned; he's a wonderful guy. Agreed. And I'd like to ask you some questions about that. And how did it come about? Were you involved in the initial conception of the book? I, I, I had the good fortune to get involved relatively early on because I met Ned relatively shortly after he moved to Philadelphia. And he had, of course, written the New York City Trees book some years before. And that was also on Columbia University Press and also with the Central Park Conservancy. And that's just, you know, phenomenal book. Um, he moved to Philadelphia and realized just how great Philadelphia is in terms of, um, well, just Philadelphia in general, of course, and also natural resources such as the lovely trees that are here. And so he, you know, got to know uh, Paul Meyer, also Catriona Breyer is another co-author on that. And I was at the Academy of Natural Sciences at the time and doing a tour of the department for the Harvard Club of Philadelphia. So it's an organization of alumni um, and alumni who, you know, just kind of go around and do neat stuff. And so, and so I'm doing this, this tour and someone, you know, kind of had just heard about it last minute. And so the person that I was working with to organize it was saying, yeah, you know, you know there's this guy and, and he just heard about it, wants to know if he can get on with the tour. And it was Ned. <laughs> and I'd heard his name 
maybe a month or two before, you know, word gets around amongst us, you know. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, I've been hearing about this guy. You know, I didn't realize he totally moved to Philadelphia at the time. And we met, and Ned and I just immediately clicked. I mean, you know how it is. There's people that you meet, and you're thinking, friends forever. <laughs> yeah, and Ned is just, he's done spectacular work for the entirety of his career, but he's also just one of the, just the great people in the world, <laughs> in my opinion. And, and so we sat down, and he was like, hey, if you want to, you know, help out with the book. And I said, gosh, I'd love to. And so we spent, you know, countless hours in the field together, you know, Ned's just, just great to be out in the field with. He knows so much, enjoys it so much. We went all over the city, um, other places around the city as well. Any neighborhood you can think of, we probably went. And so it's, it's fun looking through that book now because there's photos of, you know, trees in Philadelphia. There's also locations to see certain species that are places that we went. And so it's this really kind of fun little travelogue of, of looking at it. And Ned has uh, extensive experience in publishing. So he was at uh, Reader's Digest Books before uh, moving to Philadelphia when he was still up in New York. And he uh, wrote natural history books and other, other books as well, worked with some eminent scientists. So he, he you know, knew the science part, knew publishing. So I, I felt like it was just this, uh, you know, master's course in publication and uh, natural history, and also just getting to spend time with someone who has become a very, very good friend. And what's really fascinating, I met Ned serendipitously at the Woodlands, and I was going on one of the tree tours uh-huh. early on, and they had the book there, and I was really excited, and I got talking with this gentleman who was there, and he goes, oh, I, I wrote the book, and I uh-huh. was like, this guy is so humble, you know. Yep. And Robin, who who has been on our show, referenced him a couple times about showing these trees in the book and talking about these trees in the book. And uh, he's just a delight. You're mm-hmm. right. He's a delight, and he he makes you feel like you've known him forever. Yep, yep, yep. You know, we went coring trees at the woodlands. Jesus, like 10 years ago. And we're there. And there's these great photos of, of, of us, you know, coring trees, which, you know, I, I don't know if you've done that before, but it takes a little bit of a little bit of muscle to do it. And there was there was 10, 15 of us there. Mindy Maslin was there. You know, Jessica Baumert was there. And it was, you know, I know Ned for maybe like a like a year or so. And you know, I'd already been, you know, thoroughly impressed with him as a person. I was familiar with work he'd done previously. But then with doing the um the coring, again, it's you know, going out in the field, you have to core it, do it right. And then you bring it back to a lab and you sand down the core. Um, you know, if someone's not familiar with it, it's it's basically like, like a screw with with handles that you turn and it's hollow on the inside. So you can extract out a core that cuts across the rings. And so you can age the tree. And so Ned has a whole setup in the back of his house for sanding them down. And he just has this thoroughness that this is phenomenal going through and, you know, sanding them down and counting them out, finding out how old the trees were. And we did that at, at, at other sites as well, coring trees around the city. But I think that also speaks to Ned's attention to detail. He did a lot of work. Oh gosh, I'm blanking on names right now. Columbia's uh, tree lamp, um, and that was where where he learned how to count rings, and and then he sort of you know you know brought that down down here to Philadelphia. There's just these these great photos 
from, like I said, about 10 years ago of us coring trees at the woodlands. And that's one of the great things about being a field biologist is that, you know, you look at the work that you do and it's just, you know, great memories of, of being neat places with wonderful people. I mean, that to, that to me is what, what keeps me out in the field. I mean, and also I like the plants. Well, you know, it's really funny about that. You know, people always say, you know, when are you going to retire or when, you know, if you are someone who is passionate about what you do mm -hmm. and you love being out there in nature, there's no retirement. There's no such thing as retirement because you constantly want to find the next best thing. Um, as you're out there, you're going to find the next oldest tree or the, the biggest tree that you've ever <laughs> seen. Uh, you know, even when I take students out to, I usually take them after my woody plants class at, at Longwood, I take them to a couple different sites so they could see the trees in a different, in a different perspective because they don't always look the same at different spots. There's two really special persimmon trees at the estate at Andalusia, which is right on the Delaware River. It's the home of the Biddles. And every time I go there, my heart stops because they're just so gorgeous. And they're the two best persimmons I've ever seen. And, you know, you get that and everybody has the same reaction. Their mouths drop and <laughs> you know, they're just in awe of seeing something like that. So you never get tired of that. At least I never get tired of that. And I know it sounds like you don't get tired of it. And I'm sure Ned doesn't get tired of it either. Geeking out on gorgeous plants. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and also just getting out with students. I, I uh, was teaching in city planning at, at Penn in city planning a few years ago. And I took my students out in the field all over the place. And, and I very intentionally took them on public transportation the whole time. I wasn't going to rent a van because you really get a sense as you, you know, move through the city how it works, you know? So we took the L up to Juniata Park, took the trolley out to Mount Moriah, you know, went all over the place, down to FDR Park, and, and just, you know, getting around and seeing things. And that's one of the great things with teaching is that you see things not just because they're asking questions, but because you're thinking of the answers. And it's neat, you know, taking students because you're thinking analytically, but also it's like what you're saying, where it's people seeing something for the first time and go on, you know, just the eyes widening, you know. And and then relating to what you talked about in class is, is it's almost like coming full circle where you say, wait until you see that tree that makes you just, your heart stops when you see that really large sycamore that is the biggest one you've ever seen or pine tree that, you know, we took the students uh, from Longwood to a couple of these little parks down in Delaware that were formerly old DuPont estates that are now part of this park system. And some of the trees in there were enormous. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't help stop and have your heart skip a beat. Mm. Yeah, when I was taking soil sciences, um, when I was an undergraduate, we would go out in the field. Um, it was, you know, a fuel course. And we went up to Cathedral Pines up in uh, Connecticut. And it's old growth, like actual old growth, never been cut down. But, you know, I'd never seen them that big before. And it's, it's you know, Cathedral Pines because you really feel like you're walking through that cathedral. And, it, and it's something where, you know, sometimes, you know, you want to see the forest and the trees at the same time. Um, and when you're operating at that scale, you're walking through and getting a sense of just how big things can be in this world. Those, uh, those moments of awe are, uh, I guess, what the first colonists felt like when they came here, when the whole 
the whole country was that way. And uh, I remember uh, going to Alan Seeger State Park up in, in central Pennsylvania for the first time seeing two uh, hemlocks that were pre-1492, pre-1492. And there's these two trees that were at Alan Seeger State Park. And the Canadian, hem the Canadian hemlocks was, were so big the circumference of them, you would need at least like 10 people to get around the circumference of them. There was only two of them. And one of them had passed, I guess, maybe about 10 years ago, came down. Mm -hmm. And uh, you I, we took our children to see them when they were little. And it, it's just crazy to see something like that. Yeah. And then also, you know, getting out in the field with people that don't have that background because I didn't grow up in an outdoorsy family, and I wasn't, to be honest, overly interested in the outdoors when I was a kid. It wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I moved to central New York, moved to upstate New York, but, you know, started working on a farm. And it was just sort of, you know, series of, of coincidences that I ended up there. But I wasn't interested in, you know, plants and animals, like getting outside. You know, my family wasn't ones to go camping and hiking and things like that. And I see that a lot with, with teaching. I think about a time that a uh, really good friend of mine teaches at, uh, he's a professor at Gettysburg College. And we took, or he he took, I went along with him, um, a class out to go look at salamanders. So he's a herpetologist. And we're going out with these students. Most of them had, had, did not have field experience before. And they're, you know, we're, we're going through a pond, you know, looking for the spotted salamander. And they were just having the time of their life, you know. It was just, you know, a group of students. And it's not a now and then, because, you know, when I was their age, I also was not someone to go out in the field, as we say now. And it was great to see, you know, like, oh, yeah, like, I, I remember being like that. Because for a lot of people that are interested in, um, you know, outdoorsy type of things, grew up doing it and don't remember getting interested in it. They might remember, you know, the first bird they wrote down, but they don't remember the first bird that they knew the name of. When I was working, doing a lot of work with the city with Parks and Rec, yeah, you know, you're familiar with the Haddington Woods work, you know, and it was getting people out in the field, looking at the trees, looking looking at the plants, and just this, you know, wonderful experience. Paulette Roan, I don't know if you knew her. She was at, at Mount Moriah. She, she passed away a few years ago. Um, and she's someone who did incredible work at Mount Moriah Cemetery and didn't come out of an environmental sciences, ecology, uh, botany background. And I had just the wonderful fortune to be able to work closely um, with her, you know, getting out in the field at Mount Moriah, where she was doing a lot of work, and we were learning things together. And I remember there was just this one great moment, and we were looking at something, and I was saying that, that I, didn't, I didn't know the name of, of a plant that was there. And she said, like, that was when it kind of clicked that she realized that for those of us that are field biologists, we don't know all the names on the top of our head. You know, we have to figure stuff out. We often don't know things. And very often, those of us that have been doing it for a while, we take students out in the field and we prepare beforehand. And so it looks like we know everything off the top of our head. And the students or, or you know, close colleagues, you know, you know, Paulette being one of them, often, you know, don't always see that, you know, we have to do a lot of prep. And just this great moment, you know, where, where we had this, this, this connection because she, you know, was just phenomenally knowledgeable about um, Mount Mariah, about about so many, so many other things. And we had that sort of, you know, that, that, that that's wonderful meeting of the minds, <laughs> looking at a plant and me 
not knowing the name of it. That happens a lot. That's one of the reasons why you go out on the journey ahead of time before you have your class. I know I went with a colleague to Trap Pond State Park down in Delaware to see the northernmost bald cypress. And we got there and we were making note after note after note. And my friend Sue looks at me and she goes, this is such and such. And I said, oh, okay, that's new to me. So then we find something else and I say, oh, that's such and such. She goes, oh, that's new to me. And then we'll, we'll keep going through and looking at all these different species. And because we're further south, the reference is different because of the plant palette. So you get to see things that you don't find up here necessarily. So you do have to do preliminary research before you go out and teach class. You're, you're constantly out there and you take a good buddy with you who <laughs> knows something more than you do, or you know something more than they do, and you kind of put the puzzle pieces together. You know, I live in the D.C. area, and I lived in D.C. area the first time around about 10, 15 years ago. And I moved here from Boston originally, from Cambridge. And, you know, I'm walking on Rock Creek Park, you know, the big park that, you know, sort of D.C.'s air quotes Fairmount Park. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at all these trees with these, you know, long oval shape, pointed tip. Um, I'm looking at them. I'm like, oh, that's Umbrella Magnolia because I'm, I'm, I'm translating it into Philadelphia, you know. And I'm walking by and I'm walking by and I'm like, that's not Umbrella Magnolia. It was all pawpaw because <laughs> it grows all over the place. But it's something where we tend to translate. I, I think I, I'm not the only one that does this of what we know about where we're from. And then there was just this, you know, this reconfiguration. Like, oh my gosh, like pawpaws all over the place around here. It's really neat. And then shortly thereafter, a friend of mine who's an excellent field botanist, we went out to a spot around here, a site in, uh, in, in Maryland, and came across pawpaws just covered in fruit. And he's got a bag and he's just, you know, stashing them up like a, like a bear at a beehive. <laughs> you know, it's neat for me looking at those differences across not an enormous amount of latitudinal gradient. You start getting different stuff. Or, um, you know, when I first moved to New England, Lindera benzoa, you know, uh, spice bush is something that we see throughout the understory in southeastern Pennsylvania. You know, you, you, you can't walk through the forest without brushing up against it. So I move up to New England, and as we do, I get out in the field as quick as possible. And I'm looking, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's, there's no Lindera benzoa in here. So I convinced myself that it was not present, you know, said in the books it was there, but, you know. I was maybe thinking I knew better. But then in the springtime, I'm walking through the forest and I see along the streams and creeks that there's, it's almost like a paintbrush of yellow have been, have been, have been strewn along the creek and stream. And it was the spice bush flowers. And I realized that up in New England, it grows in the wetter areas. It doesn't grow in those more mesic upland areas. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love that. It's, it's just the neatest thing, these differences where, yeah, same plant, it's there, but it does something different. Or a similar thing like white pines do, but it's almost like the tulip poplars of New England. Like, you know how tulip poplars get for southeastern Pennsylvania, where they'll just come in, you know, you know, you know in thickets, and then self-fan and grow up, of course, to, you know, majestic trees that they are. And white pines do that in New England. Where they'll come in early, come up dance, and then end up being these tall, uh, uh, majestic pines. You know, we're in same country, you know, same side of the country. You can travel within a day to get to the one to the other. Same plant, same plant species are there, 
but they're, but they're acting different. They're behaving differently. And so that's where something like, you know, with Ned's books, you know, with the New York City trees and the Philadelphia trees, you know, one could say, well, you know, it's Philadelphia, New York. They're kind of close to each other. And it's like, no, it's a, I don't want to say it's a different world, but when you look closely, you just really get this, this, this wonderful sense for these differences that aren't nuances, aren't subtleties. They're just unnoticed by a lot of people until they, until they start looking. We talk a lot on this show about uh, climate change and how plants are creeping up and moving around. That those, those nuances that you're talking about help us to decide whether we could put something in a certain place because we've seen it growing in a certain place that we wouldn't expect to see it. And that's true of taxodium, for example, when you see a bald cypress growing in concrete in the city of Philadelphia, and you know that you see it in a swamp down in Delaware, and you say to yourself, how can that tree survive those two extremes? There are plants that are extremely resilient, and they are amazing with their adaptations. And we really don't think of them if you're from the South, and I was talking to somebody else about this, they were saying, I can't believe that you have them as a street tree in Philadelphia. And I said, yeah, we do. They were shocked. That that tree can be growing in concrete or in a concrete pit or a coffin, as we call it. My wife is from uh, uh, Mississippi. So we go you know, to, to visit family. And it's neat seeing like Southern Magnolia growing very freely along the highway. And, you know, we, we, we got uh, to married in Mississippi and, and, and some folks came down, some of whom were pretty darn good botanists, you know, so we went out to get out in the field and, and I'm looking and I'm looking at, the, at this one um, shrub, I'm looking at it, look, I just, and a friend of mine, Marion Holmes, who came down for the wedding, you know, she comes over, she goes, that's Yelpon. <laughs> so I like Victoria, you know, and I was like, oh my God, you mean the cultivated shrub? <laughs> <laughs> talking about that the other day, uh, I can't remember who it was, but we were talking about the Yopon and, you know, how far north can it really go? What is the cutoff point for it? Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, not, I'm not that familiar with its hardiness up this way, if at all. But it is really a, an important plant for down in the south. Getting back to the to the book itself, the historical context of trees and finding those trees that may have been here around the 1700s, there's not many of them left, mm-hmm. but uh, the ones that are around, where might someone find one of those in the context of Ned's book? There was one that was well-documented in Hunting Park that actually came down a few years ago a willow oak that's in the southwest corner of the park as huge. And during the bicentennial, there were signs that were put up for um, bicentennial trees, trees that were presumed to have been around at the time of the, you know, 200 years prior to that. And there was a sign, you know, with that old Liberty Bell sign from 76 that was there. And that that was just you know, really neat to see. And a bunch of us went up there, gosh, this was nearly 10 years ago, um, got some great photos of it. That actually has since come down. And that's something with a lot of these older and large trees is they are, of course, you know, vulnerable to coming down. And there are some also, there's some trees along the Wizzahickon, like sort of near the Henry Avenue Bridge, where there's some old chestnut oaks 
that we, we never cord or anything, kind of didn't want to because they're so old. And they're growing on the rocks there. You know, it's the Wissahickon. You know, so there's a lot of rock, rocky areas up around there. And those are ones that I've, I've always kind of wondered, you know, like whether or not they date to that time as well. Because, you know, there's a lot of these larger trees and they can look like they're really old, but some of these trees grow a lot faster than we expect. I mean, there's like, you know, polonias that can put on an inch a year. White pines can also grow very rapidly, of course. And so there's some of these big trees aren't necessarily super old trees. Conversely, there can be trees that are very small and very old. When I think of trees, when you go up into New York State on the top of the mountain ridges, you have chestnut oak, and some of them are a couple hundred years old, and they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're short, they're short-statured. Um, same thing within the Pine Barrens, too. You'll find some of these trees that are limited by the type of soil that they're in, or they actually have changed genetically to be accommodated by that site or have genetic blips that can be very old and they don't look it. Yeah, and it's not not a bad strategy, you know, to to you know, sort of sort of, you know, take time, wait, <laughs> you know. It's like staying young. Exactly. <laughs> But it is interesting because because in Philadelphia, I've never come across any forest stands older than like 100 to 150 years old. And my kind of operational definition of a forest stand is if I can't see through to the other side, it's a forest stand. Um, because there certainly are, you know, as we just noted, you know, tr- individual trees, or perhaps even a few of them that may be older than that. But like 100, 150 years ago, that is kind of the oldest Again, for the forest stands, not for uh, individual trees. And when you think about, you know, the history of Philadelphia, you know, Fairmount Park is starting up and then expanding out in that time frame. You know, people were cutting down fewer trees um, because they're starting to to use other heat sources. You know, people aren't aren't using uh, wood as much to heat their houses, but are using other heat sources, which then means that you don't need to have a woodlot out back to keep you warm through the wintertime. Also, when people start using fewer horses, we see the transition to the automobile, you know, you have less need for, for, for hay fields and those hay fields can then start growing some trees. And so like late 19th, early 20th century, we see this increased forestation in Philadelphia due to some of these technical innovations whose intent of the inventors were not to increase forestation in Philadelphia, kind of inadvertently led that way. And it's really amazing. Yeah, you read documents from that time. And there's a paper about birds, early 20th century, where there was concern about losing the crow because of lack of forests. And I don't think anyone in forest in Philadelphia is uh, concerned about losing the crow it's at this point in history. They have to have a certain height to sit themselves on. They have to have branches that are big enough to hold them. Yeah, yeah. and it's, yeah, I mean, think about the bald eagle. I mean, there's multiple mating pairs in bald eagle because there's trees big enough to hold the bald eagles now. If you go up by, um, by Holmesburg where the penny pack comes out, there's this enormous, lovely American sycamore there with a big eagle's nest in it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is something that, you know, when we look at the bald eagle, I mean, that's this, you know, amazing return of a, of a species that hadn't been seen here in just so long. And of course, the food source needs to come back. There needs to be the fish. So, so the eagles have something to eat. But they also, you know, we don't live by bread nor fish alone. We also have to live somewhere. And so when we're looking at 
this reforestation of the city, some of those benefits aren't going to be seen for decades because it takes a while for a tree to get big enough for a bald eagle nest. If it was, if something was planted here 60 years ago, well, that's pretty good evidence that it can last for 60 years because it's been here for 60 years. And the neat thing with trees is, you know, they don't move. So we know that where they are growing now is where they were planted. And we can also estimate as we get a sense of how long they're going to be, um, how long they're going to be here. And think about like southern, more southern species, something like Quercus falcata, you know, the, uh, the, the, uh, the southern red oak. There's two really nice sized ones in Wisconsin Park that uh, Tony Gordon, he's an excellent botanist that lives out in the Northeast. And we were going through Wissanoming and he's like, yeah, there's two big Southern red oaks. And I was like, believe it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I knew that. I knew Tony's good, you know, like, and, and, and that's like, like, well, you know, Falcata does pretty well here. This is prima facie evidence for that because I can take you to one in Wissanoming Park, you know, or two or I think the first time I saw Southern Red Oak was at Fort Washington State Park when I was talking to one of the rangers there and they said, oh, we want to see a really interesting tree. If you're a tree person, come over here and take a look at our Southern Red Oak. It's known all over the place because it's the only one around. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited about it. Of course, the um, when I got to the university, there was one there and a temple at Ambler and um you get to see more of them, but you, you know, you didn't know that they were there until somebody pointed them out to you and go down further south into, uh, into Delaware. You'll see them. Mm. You see them along the coastline. Uh, I want to say the back dunes, you'll see them too. Really fascinating, mm -hmm. but they look totally different because of, because of the soil structure. They can't grow real tall. So, you know, as a botanist uh, and a scientist, thinking about stormwater and how has our stormwater affected our growth here, our conscious growth of trees and also creekside plantings. You know, how conscious have we been about that when it comes to planting and even looking at species that do really well in those corridors that you were talking about that you saw in New England with the uh, Lindera benzoin? Yeah, and so, and so there are those, you know, riparian trees, and something that's, you know, related actually to similar in certain ways of the bald eagle story of looking at sometimes surprising interactions is that you start getting, you know, cleaner water, in part because, you know, tree plantings, you know, can prevent things from going through to, to the surface waters, and you get that cleaner water, and then you get, you, you know, increased ability to, to maintain a more diverse fauna, and so I start getting beavers. And this is something that, that, that we're getting more of in Philadelphia over the, over the past years is beavers in the city along the Pennypack, along uh, Frankfurt Creek, out by Cobbs Creek. And as pretty much everyone knows, you know, what beavers like to, like to get at are trees. And so this is something that it's like, well, you know, how is that going to be managed? And this is currently an open question because, you know, the beavers will go at the trees. This happened in Cobb, happened out by Frankfurt Creek a little bit, a, a, a bit as well. And so with the plantings, and again, this is something that still is an open question as to, as to how to maintain those plantings in the face of environmental success of the return of an animal that is reliant on waterways. Interesting, uh, a topic about beavers because you either love them or you hate them. Mm -hmm. These seems that way, but it's also an indicator, as you mentioned, of clean water uh, or cleaner water. 
I know that I've seen uh, activity of those up along the canals uh, in New Jersey, up uh, by um, Stockton and uh, further up where the water is cleaner and you see them coming in and boy, they take down a lot of trees. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They take down a lot of trees. And are we willing to give up our trees for beavers? Uh, yeah, or is it something where it's planting different trees, planting more trees, planting a screen of trees that are, that are rapid growers, things that sprout out, you know, um, um, populus or something like that, you know, and looking at these strategies to, you know, integrate these different interests. Because when we're thinking about the environment, it's not a single thing. You know, you can't have a grassland and a forest at the same place by definition. And 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 needing to, you know, integrate across those different environmental needs and interests. And looking at these waterways. And it's something that, you know, with the trees for catching that 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 runoff that is of course problematic because it goes into the sewers. And of course in Philadelphia as well, there's combined sewers where those stormwater inlets, um, they lead into the same pipes that the sanitary sewers lead into as well. And if there's rainfall exceeding a certain amount, then that triggers a combined sewer overflow. And this is something that you know, potentially could lead to you know, pathogens going into surface waters. It's a benefit, you know, putting the trees in. Also, you know, benefits in reducing these combined sewer um, uh, overflows, but you know, if the beaver are eating the trees, how is that going to going to affect that? Thinking thinking about all of these all of these pieces that that interact with each other, it's it's mind boggling. And you know, for those within the sciences, though, we we like having our minds be boggled. Well, I also think we need to think that uh, just like we live in communities, we interact, and there's lots of different types of human communities. We also have to think that plants have those similar types of communities where they they live together but they also function in a way that we might not expect them to function or they do function the way we expect them to function and i think that that's important too instead of looking at an individual tree we have to think of a group of trees or a community of trees we have to start thinking community wise rather than individuals because it's the it's the community that does the heavy lifting mm -hmm. just like with people we do the heavy lifting as a community, and so do trees and, and shrubs and other plant material. So I think that's really a message that I, I think our listeners probably know about and are aware of in case you're not, communities are important. Mm. And now with all the science that's coming out about how trees communicate with one another, how they have the ability to send messages back and forth, mother trees with baby trees and so on and so forth, that there's that activity that's constantly going on that we may not hear mm -hmm. because they communicate differently, but it's happening. Mm. Yeah. And also those communities change through time. You know, like we were talking about before, about the park system comes online, all these other changes, and there's a lot of tulip poplars. You know, those are those early successional trees, those Samaras, the winged fruits can go you know, a decent amount. Um, they can come in, they can germinate when it's relatively dry and grow up and grow fast. With those, um, the tulip poplars, you know, their lifespan's generally around 100, 150 years. They can, you know, live a little bit longer, but that's generally their lifespan. And, you know, as we were just discussing, that's about how old a lot of these stands are. And so with these tulip poplars, as they're, as they're coming down, you know, that then presents a risk if, if there's branches falling or the entirety of the tree for that matter. 
as looking at it as a community, but also looking at it as a community that changes through time. And the species composition changes, the species distribution changes, the size of the individual species change through time. And it's something that is, you know, wonderful to see, but it's also thinking in terms of management, thinking that, you know, what we're doing now, planting trees, is going to impact people that are around 50, 60, 70 years. You know, Paulette Roan, who I mentioned before, that was something that she has always said far more eloquently than I ever did or ever could. Joan Blaustein, you know, I know you know Joan as well. You know, she was the you know, director of ecosystem services for Parks and Rec. She would say the same thing, again, far more eloquently than, than I ever did or, or ever could. But, you know, thinking that, you know, what we're doing now, it's not an abstract butterfly effect type of a thing. It's a, as near to a guarantee as can get in life. And bringing this back full circle to the book. And that's why I think books like the one that you and Ned worked on are so important because you document what has been what has been mm -hmm. here, what's been here, and you've measured, you know, his book on Central Park, mm -hmm. the whole idea of documentation of what we see in the environments, just as important as what we have in the environment and how we move forward with that. Because these are also, these books are snapshots in time that may not come back. But I did not think of it that way. And I, I, I'm just, as mentioned, just perpetually grateful that, that I had the opportunity to help him out with wonderful work that he and Catrione and Paul did, you know, authoring that book. And I hadn't thought about it as, you know, there's photos and there's the where to see and like all that that I see maybe selfishly perhaps as, oh my gosh, it was so much fun. We were going to these places, but you know, I am, as you know, you're very interested in, you know, what grew where, when, and I'll comb through, you know, old, old papers, old photographs. And it's something that just for whatever reason, I just enjoy doing it. And I'd be very honest with you. I, I did not think that in a hundred years, someone's going to be looking at that Trees of Philadelphia book and putting pins in a map with, with, with a similar similar mindset. That's what I am leading to in that fact that uh, people who have the sensitivity to be out in the environment and who are working within the context of the environment and are documenting species that are there are really doing an important service for a community because we can look back and say, yes, this grew here, it no longer grows here. I think of myself and being in the industry for over 40 years, and I think to myself, we had so many hemlocks here. We had thousands of hemlocks here, and they're almost all gone. And that came and went just like the elm came and went, and just like the chestnut blight came and went, those are things that we will never see again. And so these snapshots, I think, are critical for people for the future. So books like Ned's, the one, the one that you and Ned put together, are those snapshots that are invaluable to people who are going to be studying down the line. It's interesting. There's a lot of local natural history groups where you know, just very energized amateurs go out in the field and across numerous taxa, you know, there, there's insect groups, there's bird groups, people that are just interested in these and will publish journals, publish, you know, often peer, you know, generally peer-reviewed journals. You know, there's, you know, Cassinia, the Delaware Valley Ornithological Club. They have a, a journal they put out, Philadelphia Botanical Club, that I've been involved in for most of my life now. Um, you know, we uh, publish Bartonia, a journal, um, peer, a peer-reviewed journal, Rodora, 
the New England Botanical Club puts that out, or New England Botanical Society, they just renamed themselves. But I mean, the, the list goes on. And it's this documentation of what grew where, because we'll go out in the field, write down a list, and publish it. And it's something that, you know, you get kind of used to doing it and not always really getting, it, it, it's a service to future, to, to a service to the future, which sounds, but it's something that I never got. And I got to be honest with you, I always saw that as a chore of putting in my field trip reports, and, oh, got to do this, you know. And then uh, Ted Gordon, who's, who's been involved with botanical clubs since before, well before I was born, um, and just phenomenal field botanist. And he was, he was, you know, making sure the field trip reports got in. And he was like, where's your field trip reports? And then he explained to me, you know, like, like, this is often the only documentation of what was growing as a community, even like what you were just saying. It's not a, it's not a single pin in a map. It's the family tree on the map. And that these are often, uh, practically always, the only documentation. And it's not this chore to be done. It's something that's kind of neat that someone's going to be reading this in 20 years, you know? That, that, and that's the critical part, you know, the book can be as old as the tree itself yep, yep, yep. At, at time. Uh, and it got me thinking when you were talking about documentation, I belong to the International Dendrology Society and they take trips all around the world to look at specific trees and they document each year, they have a, a book that they put together from all the trips that have been taken and those books are extremely important because they do document trees that may be on the cutting block because they're almost becoming extinct. You know, having that documentation where they were, when they were there, you know, how they were there, what the weather was like, all that's documented. And that is really, again, another snapshot, but also important for people down the line, you know, science goes on uh, uh, <laughs> after we're gone uh, and the trees disappear too so yeah, yeah and it's interesting because i have um some you know dear friends and colleagues who work in historic preservation and they go out and document buildings you know taking the pictures and doing this and doing that and you know went along with them a couple times and and i was just like just had this moment like wow like like we do the same thing you know, he's a historian, historic preservationist. You know, I'm a biologist. You know, two cultures supposed to be. And I was like, no, it's just this attention to detail and thinking that I'm doing this because someone else is going to need to have it at some unknown point in the future. So I need to do it right because it's not going to come back. You know, that information is is wholly lost once gone. And seeing that, I was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, ecologists, botanists, horticulturalists, those of us who do what we do, you know, we have to be historians. We're looking at what was here before, you know, to inform what's going to be here. And then what you were just saying, oh, yeah, like, I'm using people's work from 50 years ago. It's a good obligation for me to have to do it for whoever's going to be here in 50 years after me. That's exactly right. Well, well, before we go, the question that we always want to ask our guests, what is your favorite tree? Um, there's a, a little cluster of service berries at uh, 13th and Pine at the parking lot that's there. And my now wife, um, at the time we, uh, we were dating, and we'd only been going out for, I think, like a month or two, we were going over, friends of mine that she had actually just met, we were going over there 
um, for dinner. We were going to have dinner with them. And we walked by uh, some amelanchier, some service berries. And I look and I was like, oh my gosh, there's service berries. This is great. We can bring them over to our friends to kill and them. We can bring some service berries. And so, and so my wife and I, we start picking the berries off the tree. Maybe had a bag with me or something, you know, and so we're packing it in. And then someone walks by, she's walking her dog and she goes, oh, can you eat them? And, and I was like, yeah, you know, we're eating them, you know, like, and this woman just starts, starts eating them off the tree. And, and, and my wife, and now wife, my girlfriend at the time was like, that was kind of trusting, you know, like, but then we, we sort of like pack up, you know, our service berries and then go the rest of the way to our friends. They're bakers. Um, they make cantalays. I don't think I've ever had them before, but there's phenomenal pastry. And whenever we go over their house, it's just incredible dinner. Everything's perfect, spot on. They're wonderfully knowledgeable about so much of this. And we walk in and I'm like, here's some service berries. And they're like, what are these? And they never had them before. And so, you know, we had them along with dinner. And so that is, you know, one of those, you know, it's a little cluster of trees right there. And also when I was very small, I lived at and Lombard. That's where I was a little tiny baby, <laughs> you know, so I have a born right nearby to it. But it's something where, you know, trees and it's about eating and it's about these, Shad Bush is one of my favorite flowers. The berries are so beautiful. The color is lovely. And it was, again, you know, one of the first times that, you know, my wife and I were actually doing something as a couple together, as I remember. It was very early on. And I was just like, wow, like, she's great. She's just eating them and just having a good time. And it was just this, you know, bringing people together. But also that th this, this person was walking her dog. I probably walked by there so many times and didn't know, you know, what exactly this was. We go over friends of ours, you know, who are just, you know, phenomenally knowledgeable about food, cook, eat, great bakers and all the, all these things. They hadn't seen it before. And it's just this sort of, you know, that there's always something new, even with something that you may have seen a hundred times. Trees, plants, you know, just, just bring people together in such spontaneous ways. My wife and I still talk about that. We still tell that story about the woman with her dog walking by and bringing, bringing them over to Gil and Nems and having them with dinner. And it was just such, a, you know, a wonderful a memory that I have every time I walk by there. I think of it. And with trees, with the memories, they're planted in the ground. You're going to see it and you're going to have this memory of what came in the past, not just for you, but for what was, what was there before as well. And I think that's a perfect way to end with, with your book, with Ned and the woman who's walking her dog. I wonder how many people she told about that <laughs> for that group of trees. In other words, you're always the teacher. You're always the teacher, David. And I think that that's really wonderful. You just never know whose life you're going to change by just showing them something that they didn't know anything about. Thank you again for being on our podcast and uh, wishing you the best in Washington. Keep well and uh, enjoy your trees. Same to you. It's great to see you. Always so good to talk to you. Thanks for the opportunity to share the conversations that you and I often have with a lot more people. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.
Thank <laughs> you.